this is an awesome time in the life of our church. Our student ministry just got home from Super Summer this weekend. We're, we've had smack camp already. Our kids are, are about to go to children's camp. It's a fantastic time for us to celebrate baptism today with Juliana and with all of her family. And that sort of brings us to the point as we open the Bibles to Mark chapter 3 today, brings us to the point where we ask the question, what does God want to do in your life this week? How does God want to take this church family and focus us and use us for his glory this week? How does he want to use you to serve somebody else this week? How is he going to make the world better through you? I'm eager to see. Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to find our Bible passage today. Inside this sermon, there's a little bit of my vision for who we are as a church family. And, and that is that the sermon today addresses, in a way, the way that we love each other as a church, the way that we're knit together. One of the strong points of Carterville Baptist Church, for as long as I've ever been a part of her and for years before I came, is that this church loves one another well. This church loves people well. If you're a guest here, you'll be loved well here. We'd love to bring you into our community, into small groups, into discipleship environments with you. But this church has a strength in community. And so today we're going to read about that in a way, but I want to start with this. Hey, as a church, we're people of God's vision. We're people of God's story. We're gathered around some very powerful ideas. Let me, let me share what I mean by that. We're gathered today around the idea that God loves you so much that he sent his only son to redeem you. Not just you, but the world. We gather around the idea that sin has a grip on our souls, that we cannot be the people that we want to be, the people that God wants us to be, unless we're set free from sin and Christ died and rose so that God himself could take the burden of our sin away from us. We're people of hope. We're people of a resurrection. We're people who believe that death doesn't hold us. We are people that believe that God loves every human on this earth, that every life is sacred, that every person matters. We're people that believe that God communes with us. Like as you're getting ready to go back to school in just a couple of weeks, we are people who believe that God goes back to school with you. That when you go back to that fifth grade classroom, that seventh grade classroom, when you go back to that college, God's with you. We're people who believe that as you're bringing new children into the world and becoming parents and you're looking at a task that is over your head, God helps you. We are people that believe that Jesus is up to something in the world, that God hasn't abandoned us, that we have deeper hope and purpose and meaning. But let me ask you this. If we're going to give our lives to Jesus, what do we do when the expectations of the kingdom of God begin to become peculiar to the status quo? What if God asks us to do things that causes His kingdom to come into conflict with conforming to society? Like, what do we do when God asks us to do something that's a little bit, I don't know, weird in the eyes of culture? When somebody says, do you really believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Yes, I do. Do you really believe that people have to offer their life to God through Christ to be redeemed, adopted into His family? Yes, I really do. Some of our beliefs are a little bit far out. And in Mark chapter 3, we're going to encounter a situation where people gathered around Jesus, and there are three groups of people in our story today, and three different ways to respond to Jesus. Now, I needed to let you know that in Mark chapter 3, we've come to a point in the ministry of Jesus when Jesus has done some things that are pretty crazy. So John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness and people were getting baptized by the hundreds. 
The Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus and he begins to cast demons out of people. He starts to raise dead people. He heals people. He goes to church into a synagogue where a man has a shriveled up, withered, crippled hand. And Jesus reaches out and heals the man. And he's well right there in church. He has conflict where he casts a demon out of a man in church. We may need that some Sundays. But there's a guy in the church, in the synagogue, with a demon. Jesus heals him. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has begun to bring the kingdom of heaven right here to earth. He started to show what it would look like for God to really rule, to love people, to heal them from their infirmities, to distance demons so they couldn't plague or oppress the children of God anymore, to correct religion so that we understand who God is and it's, we stop gripping for power to take control away from God. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has begun to unleash the kingdom. And it's impressing people. It's drawing crowds. It's raising eyebrows. But it's also offending the status quo. So let me read Mark chapter 3. And as we work through Mark chapter 3, I want to show you three different groups of people. The first group of people are his family members. Mark chapter 3, we start today in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So the first group of people that we meet in Mark chapter 3 are the family members of Jesus. These folks, they live in Nazareth, a town in Galilee, not too far from where Jesus is right now in Capernaum. They love him. They've loved him longer than anybody. They've loved him probably in some ways better than anybody. They knew him before. Can you imagine if you were James, Jesus' brother, and you watched him grow up, or one of the other brothers, or Mary, and you saw angels when he was born, and you've watched miracles, and you've treasured all this up in your heart, but you've got to admit, it's been a little bit weird. I mean, there have been some moments where Jesus has said some things about hearing voices from his father. Or when he's done some things that raised eyebrows. And here's the truth of it. Is that when somebody in a family starts to behave a little bit differently, it makes the whole family nervous. I mean, I don't know if you guys agree with this, but as families, sometimes we're as concerned about the reputation of the family as we are any member of it. And sometimes even as parents, like we watch our kids and we feel our reputation being lived out vicariously through them so that if they're doing something embarrassing in Walmart, they are soiling the family name and we feel it. Or if they strike out on a slow pitch that anybody could have hit, we feel offended because we feel that our reputations are riding on the hands of our kids, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I have. As families, it's just sort of what we do. We have a, a collected identity. Not necessarily good, not necessarily bad, it's sort of what it is. But the first group that comes into this story is the family of Jesus. Maybe Mary and the brothers. And they're worried about him. Here's what it said it said that the house was really crowded. It said that it was so crowded, Jesus couldn't even eat. And it said that his family came to get a hold of him, to seize him, to grab him. Because he, they thought he was losing his mind. So a couple of things I think we can take from that. 
don't think his family didn't like him. I mean, obviously Mary heard from the angel. She knew he was destined to do good things for God. And like any mother, she wanted him to do good things for God. She just doesn't want him to raise so many eyebrows or get weird. And you know, sometimes religious people can get a little weird. Amen to that. <laughs> you know, we all want our kids to love the Lord, just not to be a missionary, right? We want our kids to be saved and walk with God, just not to be a pastor. Keep it in bounds, okay? Like, don't go crazy. In other words, don't do anything weird for the Lord. Well, hold on, church. I mean, if, if our God is still the God of the kingdom, he may very well ask you to do things that are peculiar, that are unusual. I mean, he may very well prompt your middle school heart to walk over to a lonely girl at an empty table and befriend her, even though it will cost you some popularity points in middle school. That's just the kind of thing God very well might do. Or, retired folks... He might ask you to tithe your retirement, to take those 20 years that you're planning to sit back in the rocking chair and relax and give two of them to the Lord in some radical service that you never dreamed of. I don't know. That's just the kind of things that God asks people to do sometimes. He calls people to be pastors. He tells people to be missionaries. He asks you to take risks and to change. And, and, and I know that if you're like me, we feel like, no, 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 God. I have a very clear pattern for what my life is supposed to look like. I look like my father, and he looked like his father, and we're strong, and we're determined men. We don't ask for help. We don't cry. We don't do this religion stuff very well. We'll sit in a church pew. But God, you're asking me to do something that's a little uncomfortable, and it doesn't fit the mold in my family. No. Hey, I hate to break it to us all, but God may ask us to do things that make us uncomfortable. It's part of his job. He's God. Jesus' family from Nazareth was beginning to feel concerned for Jesus. And the first response we see in this story is because their family identity was beginning to be threatened a little bit. Their status in the community was being challenged. In fact, you're going to see later in the story, some of the authorities in the community were thinking that Jesus was demon-possessed. Nobody wants that. I mean, we don't want anybody to think our son's not awesome at baseball, much less demon-possessed. So the first response we see to the kingdom in Mark chapter 3, to the ministry of Jesus, as he's doing things for God that are amazing, the first response we see is the family asking him to come rein it in a little bit. That's getting a little weird. You're a little out of your mind. The easiest way to say this is, Jesus, you're getting weird you need to bring it back to what we define as normal. Normal meaning, meaning conformity. Conform to our conventions. Conform to our family pattern. Conform to the expectations of our community. Tone it down a little bit. Conform. They had every reason to worry about him. I mean, his normal routines were messed up. The house where he's teaching, it's crowded. It's full of people. And it's probably filled with some people that aren't that popular. I mean, in the Gospel of Mark, he's going to cast demons out of a man that lives in a cemetery. He's missing meals. I mean, God bless all you mothers and grandmothers, but if your child misses one meal, you're worried, right? You're on the phone. And this is Jesus who says, they'll come back to him at the woman in the well, and 
John chapter 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan, they said, we've, we've got lunch. He said, that's fine, I'm not hungry, I've got food you don't know about. He's not eating. He's so busy doing the will of God, he's not even hungry in that story. It may be in this story. But his, his normal routine has been interrupted in service of God for the kingdom. And it's causing his mother, his brothers, and his family to feel concerned. And they're simply asking him, would you rein it in? So I've got to ask us as a church, is that you? Is that, is that how you're tempted to respond to Jesus when he does great things around you? Like when God begins to unleash the kingdom on you or people around you, when God begins to call us to things that are bigger than ourselves, is that your natural response? To say, wait a minute, God, tame it down. Let's conform a little bit. We, we want to uphold the social standard, the status quo. Please bring it back into normal. Don't expect us to miss a meal. Don't interrupt our normal routine. Like, don't expect me to do something that everybody else doesn't naturally, normally do. That would be weird. Is that how you feel tempted to respond to Jesus? I do sometimes. I do. And I repent of that, and I want to ask you to repent of that. If God calls you to do something that might make you too busy, miss a meal, change friend groups, if God calls you to do something that somebody in your family would say, well, that's just a little bit unusual, put a smile on your face and be proud that God chose to use you in a big way. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Don't cower, and don't feel the pressure to conform. Now, Jesus has got a response for his family, but you've got to wait He's not going to give it to you yet. First, you've got to deal with the second group. So the first response to Jesus was a family that said, Come on, man, just please be normal. The second response to Jesus is absolute outright rejection. Let me read this. This one is really sad to me because the rejection he's going to get is from church people. In fact, not just from church people, but from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, from the leaders of the Jewish church, from the, the, from the temple leaders, the power holders, the people that are supposed to be pressing us all forward towards God, they're saying, stop, put the brakes on it. This is making me uncomfortable because if you want God, you've got to come through me. Their desire for power and for authority, their demand to be a part of God's chain of command was actually offending the work of God on earth. Let me read it to you. Everybody look in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. That's a pretty strong accusation. And it's, this is not coming just from anybody. The Bible says they came down from Jerusalem. He's up in Galilee, healing people, teaching. But these are the leaders. These people came from the temple. They're the authority. They're the professors. They're the pastors. They're the chairman. And they've come to inspect the ministry of Jesus. And they said, no, no, no. This isn't God. This is Satan. That's a strong accusation. I'm going to read the rest of the response. Jesus does give them an answer. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Have you ever heard that? Either from Abraham Lincoln or the Lego movie. Have you ever heard that quote? Sure you have. 
And this is where you got it. Verse 26. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Hey, I don't know if, if you're catching this, but basically what Jesus is saying to them is this. They're accusing him of casting out demons by the strength of Satan. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's foolishness. Satan is not going to cast out Satan. Satan is smart enough not to divide his kingdom, to divide his house. I am not casting out demons by the power of Satan. In fact, if you want to plunder a strong man's house, first you've got to go and conquer the strong man. And what Jesus is telling them is that he's bringing the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the prince of the world and he delights in our death and our destruction and our sin and our anger, our racism and our hate. And Jesus said, I'm here to take him. I'm going to bind him first and plunder his house. I've come to redeem my people, but the first step is I'm subduing him. When he was baptized, he went immediately to the wilderness and was tempted by Satan and won. He's casting out demons to demonstrate that the territory that used to be owned by Satan is yard by yard being won for the kingdom of Christ. And ultimately know that in the end, Christ will destroy Satan. But he's telling these teachers of the law, listen, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. In fact, I am kicking Satan out of Galilee. Why don't you help me? And as you read Mark's gospel, as it goes farther and farther and farther, you see the kingdom of God expanding more and more as one life after the other after the other is taken back from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Truly I tell you that people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander that they utter. In other words, Jesus is going around Galilee and he is forgiving a terrific amount of sins. He healed a paraplegic man in the second chapter of Mark's gospel. And as he healed him, he said, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is moving the earth, through the earth, not just healing our physical infirmities, but forgiving our sins, giving us peace in our soul, restoring us to God. He's doing something nobody else can do. And he just told these teachers of the law, these folks from Jerusalem, who thought that they were in charge of forgiving sins at the sacrificial table. He's telling them that he can forgive any sins, except one, verse 29. But whoever blasphemes the Holy, against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. In verse 30, he said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. In other words, he says, listen, I'm forgiving all these sins. The only sin that I'm not forgiving today is one it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible tells you exactly what it means by that. These leaders from Jerusalem were speaking against the work of God through the hands of Jesus. They said he had an unclean spirit. They're calling the Holy Spirit Beelzebub. He's casting out demons and healing people through the Holy Spirit. They say, we think you're working for Satan. He says, fine, if you want to, if you want to draw sides, I'm going to warn you, you're on the wrong side. You're speaking slanderously, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And if you're rejecting the work of God through the person of Jesus, there's a sin that cannot be forgiven because you're cutting yourself off from the source of forgiveness. Run to Jesus. Don't mock him. Don't reject the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit through the cross of Christ. 
relish in it. The irony here is that they're talking about a house divided, a kingdom that can't stand. If they serve the temple and serve God, and here's Jesus, the Messiah from God, they're actually dividing God's kingdom themselves, and they're supposed to be the ones who are leading it. So, the first way that people responded to Jesus was his family asked him to tone it down, to conform. Second, these religious leaders are outright rejecting him. They want their own authority, they want to be in charge so badly that they're saying that Jesus is operating on behalf of Satan. They're blatantly rejecting him. Now in the world today, that's not necessarily the accusation. But there are plenty of other people who do reject the work of Jesus. So I've got to ask you, how do you respond to the kingdom of God? How are you responding today to the work of God in your life, in your kids' lives, in people's lives around you? Are you rejecting it? They dismissed it by saying, this must be Satan at work. But are you dismissing the work of God? Are you dismissing his calling? If he's showing you his will for your life and you can't walk in it today, how are you rejecting Jesus? How are you responding to it? In our culture, we say it's superstitious or it's wives to old wives' tales. Sometimes we accidentally speak up and say what we really think and we say that if somebody hears God speaking to them, they must be schizophrenic because no one hears voices except people who are schizophrenic. How are you rejecting the work of Jesus? We don't blame it on Satan anymore, but we do have a list of things that we say. If we're committed to rejecting the work of God, to controlling God. Here's the problem. These people were operating on their authority. They wanted to be in charge of God. They were in charge of the temple. They wanted to be in charge of forgiveness. And they wanted to be in charge of God. I don't think they were against the Messiah. In fact, they probably taught about Messiah. They probably preached about Messiah. They probably hoped for a Messiah. They just wanted Messiah to come through them. They wanted Messiah to be one of their guys on their side. They wanted Messiah to be approved by them. They wanted Messiah to operate in their temple besides them under their instruction. And we're still in that same pattern. We want to conform Jesus into our image instead of allowing him to be himself and us be conformed into his image. We want the authority to be in charge of ourselves. We don't want God to be in charge of us. We're scared what he might do. And we want everybody to know that we are important. The very thing that causes a lot of us to reject the work of God in our lives is that we are not willing to give up authority in our lives. And here's the problem with God. When you're God, you don't take second place to anybody. So I can't ask God to be my God and then let me boss him around. It just doesn't work. Like by definition, it's offensive. If God is in my life, he's in charge. There's no such thing as Jesus is my co-pilot. He's nobody's co-pilot. He's the king. He's the boss. Like he tells me what to do, and I say, yes, sir. These people could not handle that, and they rejected Jesus. They said he had a demon. And I'm just challenging us. Take a look at your heart. Do a little evaluation right now. Are you willing to let Jesus be in charge of you in the way that he wants to be in charge of you? Or do you still feel a need to be in control, to hold the steering wheel, to be in charge of the joystick so that you won't let God do 
what he wants to do in you right now. Because if that's you today, the good news is, hey, today's a great day to change that. Today would be the, an awesome Sunday for you to look at God and say, listen, I came to your house on the first day of the week, and I am ready to let you be in control of me. No more of this lip service where I say you're in charge and then I snatch the reins back. God, no more of me trying to conform to my forefathers or keep everybody in my family proud of me. Today, I'm going to do what you want, and I'm going to be the man, I'm going to be the woman that you want me to be starting now. And I don't have to be in charge anymore. You are. There is a third response to Jesus in this story. And it starts in verse 31. We return to his family so we can make the point. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So we're back to where we began. His family's outside. He's gotten a little weird. He's missing meals. We're concerned about him. We're outside the house. And we're calling for him. Can't even get to him. And so we have to send word. Somebody tell Jesus, king of the world, that his mama's here. Get outside. So they send word into Jesus. In verse 33, he asks a really weird question. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. It's not that he doesn't know them. He grew up with them. He knows exactly who they are. He wants everybody to stop and think for a minute. Because he's about to show us that in faith, in the family of God, in church, there is a bond that is stronger than blood. That there is a bond born in the person of Jesus that supersedes any other relationship or connection that you feel or experience on earth. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So when we look at this third group, we see a couple of things about these people. As the temple leaders are mocking him and saying, well, Satan's at work in him, as his family is outside saying, I just wish you'd tone it down a little bit, please. Put God in his place. Jesus is standing in this house, and there, first of all, there are people all around him. They're circled around Jesus. They're in the right place. Hey, and I don't know about you, but that's what church should be about, is rally around the person of Jesus Christ. Like, church is not a social group. It's not a country club. It's not an organization or a power structure. It's not just a group we belong to for the sake of our reputation. It doesn't just keep our kids moral. Church is gathering around the person of Jesus to be the people of Christ, the body of Christ. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're his eyes, we're his mouth. We do the things he started. Like he brought the kingdom of God into the earth, and we're supposed to be his body that's carrying it on and on and on and on all throughout the Pine Belt. So the first thing that we see is these people are all gathered around Jesus. They're in a circle at his feet. They're disciples who are learning, who are listening. They're not rejecting they're gathered around Jesus. And I just want to remind you that we're here today because of Jesus. You came out this morning because you believe that on the first day of the week, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he unleashed the power of the kingdom on the earth. That he gave forgiveness of sins and hope and heaven and repentance. And you want that. 
we're gathered around Jesus just like they were. And if you've allowed church to become rituals or rules or an opportunity for you to impress somebody else in your family, maybe what you need today is to allow God to make church for you about gathering in a circle around the person of Jesus again. What unifies us is the death and the resurrection of Christ. That's what mobilizes the church. But the second thing about these people is they were committed to the will of God. When Jesus described his family in verse 34, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will. God has a mission for the Pine Belt today. I don't know that he is only in interested in our academics or our economics. I believe that God cares about the humans, the people, the souls in the Pine Belt today. He cares about those who are disheveled and brokenhearted. He cares about those who are deceiving themselves and celebrating victories that aren't real victories at all. God has a mission in the Pine Belt and He's inviting our church into it. And Jesus said, I won't tell you who my family is, it's whoever does the will of God. I'm asking today, are you willing to give up your will for His will? If He wants you to go about your work differently, if He wants you to go about your years in school differently, if He wants to make college a mission field for you, if He wants you to parent differently than your parents parented you, if God has a will that is different for your life than what you brought into the church this morning, will you lay it down at the altar and give it up and let God be in charge? Will you say yes to the will of God even when it conflicts with your will for your life? Let's recognize God's moving in the Pine Belt. He has a will. He has a purpose. He has a mission, and you're invited into it. And often in conflict with God's mission, with God's will, is my will. I want a recliner. I want a couch. I want comfort. I want selfishness. I want to think about me. And God is calling me to something higher, bigger, greater. So the second response to Jesus is people that circle around Jesus and do His will. Are you willing to do the will of God today? Are you ready for whatever God has? Are you willing to stop putting governors on the plan of God? Putting boundaries? Are you ready to stop putting God in a box and describing to Him how far He can take you? Are you willing to say yes to whatever God's bringing into your life? And the third way he described this group of people circled around Jesus doing the will of God is he said, these are my brothers, my mother, my sister, this is family. I want to challenge you today that as a church we are family. Your family with the Christians that are persecuted in Nigeria your family with the Christians who are hiding in North Korea. Your family with the Christians that are celebrating in China. Your family to everyone who circles up around Jesus and does the will of God. And I think there are a few implications on us for that. And the first, I think this, for the church, I want you to imagine with me as a church, if we capitalized on our strength for loving each other and allowed God to make us a church that truly was knit together like a family, that we were gathered around the person of Jesus, committed to doing the will of God, and that we loved each other like a family. A couple of things that that might look like for us. 
That means that if you're a guest in our church today, man, we welcome you into our home. You are family. And if you want to gather up around the person of Jesus and do the will of God, you're our brother and we love you. And we want, we want to get to know you. We want to bring you into our Sunday school groups. Hey, how about this? How about as a family, we want to open our homes to you. We want to begin to make time in our weekly routine to have people in our homes, to love and to get to know each other. Not to be family at arm's length, but family gathered up in a circle. How would it transform our church if we began to look up and say, listen, we've got a pot roast in the crock pot. Find somebody and invite them to home for lunch. Like, What if we began to treat each other as family? And welcome each other in our homes and love each other. To make time in our groups, in our Sunday school groups, our Wednesday night discipleship groups, or throughout the week. To make time to make other people, other families a priority for us. What if we begin to recognize the power of a church that loves like a family? So that every person who walked in those doors seeking God for a Sunday morning walked out and said, Wow, I was loved today. There's something about those people. So as we wrap up this sermon, I just want to ask each of you to commit to a few things. First, if you're a member of Carterville Baptist Church, you are on a mission for God. If you're a member of this church family, God has commissioned us to do His will on the earth. So this week as we walk out the doors, we're serving. We're loving people. We're looking for opportunities to witness, to show compassion, to speak truth, to give wisdom, support, you're on God's mission. You're not on your own mission. College, career, parenting, your athletics, they're not about you. They're about Him. Serve Him. Second, I want everybody to think about these three groups. Which one are you today? How do you respond to the work of God when His will begins to become a little bit more than the status quo will allow? When the will of God for you begins to conflict with authority structures or expectations, where are you? How do you respond to Him? Do you reject Him like these temple leaders? Whatever excuse you use, theirs was, He's working for Satan. Whatever yours is, is fine. It would work, I promise. Do you reject Jesus? Or are you like His family? You don't want to reject Him. You just want Him to rein it in a little bit. Just tame it down. Cultural Christianity is good enough. No, it's not. Or are you willing to be one of the people who will circle up around the person of Christ and do the will of God and love one another like a family? I want to invite you into that. Today, as we respond to this sermon, I want you to search your own heart and mind. And if God is working in your life, I want to help you with that. If there's something as a church that we can do, this may be the very most important moment in your Sunday morning worship. It's right now. Whether you explore your own mind and decide whether you'll let God do whatever He wants to do in you next, or whether you're going to find another reason to say no to Him for one more season. I'm asking everybody, open your lives to the Lord. Juliana followed Him in faith today. She celebrated baptism. That was her next step. What's your next step today? What's God calling you to do? How does He want you to serve? You reflect over that. If there's anybody here today that wants to ask Christ for salvation, you know that you're far from God. You want to walk through the waters of baptism and celebrate new life, but you don't know where to start. This is where you start. Come, come forward during this response time. We're going to stand and we'll be singing all over the church. You'll see people coming down to the altars to pray. Well, you just come to me. 
You walk down to me or any other staff member and share what's in your heart and let us lead you as you pray and ask Christ for salvation. If you want prayer for something else that you're going through, the altars are open. Come here and pray by yourself or come pray with me. But we want to support you as you take your next step as a faith family. So I want to ask you now, would you stand? Let me pray for you and then we'll respond. Father, I ask your Holy Spirit to search our minds and hearts. Each of us know, Lord, what you want us to do for you. And Lord, we have a thousand reasons that we've been resistant or slow or hesitant, but I pray that your spirit would overwhelm us with grace today. God, that you'd open our eyes to what you want us to see, that you would nudge us down the path, that you'd let us be people who circle up around Jesus to do his will, that you'd let us love like family. I pray, God, that today we would let go of whatever we've been clinging to, whatever has been keeping us from being 100% committed to your kingdom, and that today we would respond as kingdom people. I pray, Lord, that you do great work in our sanctuary today as we respond to you in honesty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.